Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, I'll be interviewing my Morehouse brother and CEO and founder of Hit Strategies, Terrence Woodbury. You guys need to get to know Terrence. He studies trends and numbers and gets to the bottom of them better than anybody in the game. But before I get to Terrence, I wanted to take a moment to honor the life of Vernon Jordan, who transitioned this week. A lot of people rightly know of Vernon Jordan as a friend and advisor to former President Clinton and the corporate powerhouse who paved the way for every notable black CEO and black corporate board member as a result of his career in law and finance. But many of us in my parents' generation in particular know the civil rights icon Vernon Jordan, who was lawyer to Charlene Hunter Gault when she integrated the University of Georgia former head of the United Negro College Fund and the National Urban League, two iconic black civil rights organizations that he led to prominence. You won't find anyone with the kind of career that he had that spanned law, activism, civil rights, and corporate America. But what people won't necessarily tell you is Vernon Jordan, up until his death, mentored countless black attorneys and executives across the country and was a confidant of every black CEO. President Clinton often tells the story about how Vernon Jordan declined his offer to be attorney general because he knew that a part of that job was to hold the president accountable as an independent check on the president. But in doing so, it would impair his ability to be the president's friend. Think about that after the last four years we had. He chose their friendship over power. There are countless stories like this of Mr. Jordan, and so many of us walk through doors that he opened and we stand on his shoulders. We give our elders their flowers here on the Bakari Sellers podcast, and we lost a true giant this week in Vernon Jordan. Now on to our show with my Morehouse brother and founder and CEO of Hit Strategies, Terrence Woodbury. Man, I got my Morehouse brother on here, Terrence Woodbury. What's happening, brother? Welcome to the Bakari Sellers podcast. What's up, Bakari, man? I'm so excited to finally be here with you, man. Listen, I, I uh, people may want to say I'm getting in trouble, but Terrence Woodbury is the absolute best poster in the game. And so I'm glad you're here to tell us what's up and what's down in the world of American politics and how people feeling. But before we get started, Terrence, talk to me about the arc of your career. You're all your professional stops before you got to where you are today and after you left Morehouse to what you do now at Hit Strategies. Absolutely. So. Uh, you know, when I was at uh, as a senior at Morehouse, when my political career started at Morehouse, you know, you know that 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 SGA became a microcosm of the world there that you know all too well. <laughs> we all of our career, political careers started at Morehouse. That's a fact. That's right. So, well, but but in actuality, while I was a senior, I started working for a little a little known state senator in Georgia named Kasim Reed, and he told me at the time he wanted to run for mayor, and that was my beginning uh, of my career in politics. I cut my teeth in Atlanta. Worked on a bunch of campaigns around there. Needless to say, that little-known senator became mayor of Atlanta. Um, but then I just kind of hopped around, worked on some campaigns. You know, because I don't know if you know this, man, but I actually moved to the Bahamas, ran a prime minister's race in the Bahamas for two years. Oh, and wow. then I came back here and joined uh, Brookings, which is where I really fell in love with the impacts and potential of research. Uh, after Brookings Institution, I, uh, I met a guy named Cornell Belcher who at the time was the only black pollster I knew in America. Uh, and I, I spent a few months chasing behind him. And the first time I met him, he offered me a job at his shop uh, at Brilliant Corners. 
you know, I, I started Hit Strategies about a year and a half ago after being with Cornell for five years because I just wanted to see more, more diversity and representation in this industry, you know, in politics. A lot of what is done, a lot of how resources are spent, how strategy is derived, is all uh, connected to poll numbers. And I always wanted to know who were the, the puppet masters behind the, behind the curtain with the polls. So I was excited to get an opportunity with Cornell, more excited to start Hit Strategies and start recruiting and training and deploying a bunch of other young, scrappy, hungry, diverse researchers into this market. What it, so for those who, who are just, you know, we have a lot of political wonks who, who listen to this show to get their political fix, whether they're working out or driving to work or whatever it may be. And I have some friends in corporate America who need to know this too. And anyone else that tracks public opinion, what's Hit Strategies about and who are your clients? Absolutely. So Hit Strategies is a full service research firm. You find us at hitstrat.com. You know, we do polling, we do focus groups. Uh, which are very conventional kind of public opinion research methods. But we also do some unconventional research. I like to tell everyone at Hitstrap, we're not pollsters. We are researchers. Polling is just a tool. We also do social media listening. Um, because I, I, what I like is that? What, How the hell you listen? I mean, what you listen in the clubhouse every day? What right? is social? What is listen. social media listening? Listen, so what we do, man, I like to say social media is the natural habitat. Right. Like this is where people are, are, are talking in their natural habitat, uh, as opposed to the habitat we create in a focus group when I recruit them all in and they are, you know, getting paid to tell me their opinion. But but in social media listening, I can just geofence, like put a target and an area, a city, a state, a region, and then just look at how people are talking about a given topic, a given candidate, a given issue. Uh, how are people talking about climate change or gun control? or Marjorie Taylor Greene, or any other, um, any other topic. And, then, and, and we really get to do some sentiment analysis around how people are talking about issues and, and, and candidates. You know, just, just mining the, through. I mean, what, but can, you, can you filter out the disinformation that's in there? I mean, is, is it a, is it a, has the polling caught up to some of the wickedness that you've seen and the, the tricks that you've seen being played in social media? Has the polling caught up to that? Man, Bakari, you know, disinformation and misinformation is probably the greatest, uh, the greatest threat to American democracy right now, specifically with younger and diverse communities mm-hmm. that are particularly often black men that are targeted, black men Correct. who are already cynical toward the system, right, who already have been getting the short end of a system that they don't think has delivered for them. And so it's it is almost self-validating, self-actualizing when you start to hear things about Democrats, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, the political process, the electoral system, things that you already doubted and haven't really felt the benefits of, small uh, uh, bits of of, of misinformation really do uh, shape public opinion in, in significant ways. And so research has been trying to understand and uncover that. Uh, we do a lot of tracking and measuring to see uh, how people are talking online. And that is exactly what we use social media listening to do. Now, polling's been taking a hit the last few cycles, and I think rightfully so. I mean, I, the polling was actually probably more accurate in 2016 even than last go-round. But your polling has always been right on point. Let, let's talk about high-level takeaways from what we saw from Black voters in the 2020 cycle. Based on your focus groups, exit polling, and the returns, how should Democrats be governing now if the goal is to maximize Black turnout in the midterms, particularly with younger voters? 
Well, you know, Bakari, I really have been characterizing the Black participation, Black political participation in the 2020 cycle as both pain and power, right? Mm. It was the product of overwhelming pain, pain that bore out of protest over the summer, Mm -hmm. um, where we saw the movement for Black lives evolve from a movement of Black people versus the police, a movement that we have been advancing for generations, but had not seemed to win. But over the summer of 2020, we saw that movement evolve to a movement of young people versus racism, Mm -hmm. where the protesters, the people that were in the street every day were overwhelmingly diverse, 57% white, uh, 23% black, 12% uh, Latino, and 89% under the age of 40. Right. This was a movement of young people, not just against police or about police, but young people against racism. Correct. And so we saw that pain begin to convert into political participation. Right. Where cities that that were experiencing the highest levels of protest were also experiencing the highest levels of voting during the Democratic primary Correct. in the summer. Right. And then we saw the same thing happen. So but let's back up real quick. So you're drawing a line from, let's say, Ahmaud Arbery to turnout in Georgia. And you're drawing a line to what happened in Kenosha to turn out in Wisconsin. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. And we, we even saw in Kenosha the swing from Republican. Uh, uh, we saw a Democratic, a 14 point Democratic swing in Kenosha. And so it, it, it is undeniable the role that protests played in political participation. Mm-hmm. And in fact, what we did in messaging was just expand their protests to include voting. Right. So how this does that tra- how does that translate now? I mean, what should if you were if you were in Joe Biden or Kamala Harris's ear, or you were in Stacey Abrams' ear running for governor in 2022, or you are in Justin Bamberg's ear, who's a local state rep in South Carolina, what are some of the things that black voters are looking for? Because they are, I mean, black voters right now, our generation, you and I's generation. We're more apt to hold our elected officials accountable than the generation before us because we would stay our asses home if we don't see our ROI. So what should we say to those individuals to get them out? And I I think that's even more urgent this time, Bakari, because people, black folks did recognize their power. They did Mm -hmm. flex their power. And one question that we ask in all of our polls, Bakari, is regardless of how often you vote, how much power does your vote have to make a difference? Yep. And we saw these correlations between perceptions of power and political participation. And, 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 and post-election, Black folks feel more powerful than ever, right? We're still asking that question, even after the election. And so that power that they feel from watching what happened, from making history in Georgia, you know, from flipping Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, and, and Arizona, that now comes with expectations, with demands. Black folks expect things from Democrats now. Um, and, and, and I think that that is going to require uh, Democrats to move rapidly on things like COVID relief. This was a distress call. It was the pain and the power, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, here's another example. The most vulnerable population in America to COVID are, are Black seniors. The most likely voter in 2020 was a Black senior, right? In five battleground states, Black seniors had exceeded their 2016 turnout before Election Day. Mm-hmm. Before Election Day. Right. And so that's the pain and the power. And so Democrats now have to deliver on that pain. They have to deliver COVID relief immediately. They have to deliver accountability for the insurrection. Right. 
Like black folks don't want to turn the page on that. No, black folks we don't believe there's no, them. there's no healing or turning the page before there's atonement and accountability. That's right. That's right. Um, but along with COVID relief, along with accountability, you know, black folks want to see advancements on racial justice. The number one issue across the black community, second only to COVID. COVID is the number one issue in America, no matter who you ask. The number two issue to black voters is racism, right? Systemic racism is the second most important issue to black voters. And so that, you know, Democrats are going to have to uh, not, you know, fall trapped to the uh, the cause for unity or cause for economic advancement at the expense of making social progress on, on, uh, on, on issues of justice. In your view, how well did pollsters capture black voters in 2020? And what did firms like yours do differently to accurately capture the nuances that inform black voting behavior that some mainstream pollsters may have missed? You know, uh, we talked a lot throughout the cycle, uh, Bakari, and one thing I was paying a lot of attention to were like gender differences in the black community, right? How black men and black women were responding to politics a little bit different. Also, you know, generational difference within the black community. Young black voters were amongst the most likely black people to vote for Donald Trump. Young black people, right? Who are typically considered more progressive. Um, because they're also more cynical, because they're more frustrated with Democrats. And so we had to do a lot of disaggregating. And this is where folks get people of color wrong, Bakari. I like to say polling is like soup, you know? You don't have to eat a whole bowl of soup to know what that soup tastes like. As long as that's, that spoonful you get is well-mixed, is representative of the whole bowl of soup, then you know what the rest of the soup tastes like. Yeah. Well, the problem with most pollsters' soup, Bakari, is that you know, they leave out a lot of people of color. And black folks got a lot of flavor. So if it's not enough of us in your soup, it's not going to taste right. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's been a lot of what, what, what pollsters have been getting wrong. You know, we have to have a large enough sample of people of color, of black people, of Latinos to disaggregate them. You know, in Florida, mm-hmm. if you just look at how black voters are responding, then you miss the nuance of black immigrants. Right. Or, you, or right. you do the same. Democrats fall prey to doing the same thing with Hispanic voters in Florida because we try to lump them in together and we miss the nuances of the Nicaraguan voter or the Venezuelan voter or the Costa Rican voter or the Puerto Rican versus Dominican voter. I mean, so I, right. I, I wholeheartedly get that. You know, we we there was a lot of ink spilled about Trump curious black men, kind of to your point that you were talking about earlier. But did we actually see that materialize in the final votes and action pollings? And do you think that Democrats have a black male voting problem? Uh, so, you know, I talked a lot about this, a lot about this in 2020, and I caught a lot of flack about it, especially from black men who are like, look, you know, if 81, 82% of us are supporting Joe Biden, then how is that a problem? Correct. Because 94%, you know, supported Barack Obama. And my point was always that Joe Biden could get elected with 81% of the black vote, but Cal Cunningham couldn't, right? Jamie Harrison couldn't. Mm-hmm. They needed 94% of black men. Correct. They needed Obama level black men. And, and guess what happened? Biden got 85, 86, 84% of black men, and he became president. And so, yeah, to, to answer your question, Carl, yes, we did see, you know, uh, significant increases in Trump support. But what's most important, one, we have to address that, right? Because they're still our voter. We can still get to 91, 92, Correct. 94%. Correct. But also because, um, that has down ballot effects, man. And, 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 and what's most important is that black men still support Democrats 
at a higher level than any group of men in the country, right? Like that is still the fact and we can still do better. I mean, that's a lot of room for growth. That's hope. That's hope if nobody, if you listen to this show, that's hope. Correct me if I'm wrong, but on impeachment and the insurrection, based on the focus grouping you've done, I'm assuming black voters had low expectations of impeachment and weren't surprised that a violent white mob would attack the Capitol, right? That's exactly right. You know, we, we, we have public, listen, uh, one of my favorite quotes from, uh, and I've been titling a lot of my impeachment presentations this, what was your reaction to the insurrection when you watched it? And a black woman just said, well, duh. You know? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, well, God, were we surprised here? And so, yeah, they, they, not only did they expect a backlash if Donald Trump lost, was more concerning because in our most recent poll this month, I'm sorry, at the end of January, is that 68% of black voters expect that violence will continue, that mm-hmm. we are not done with that violence. I mean, I agree with them now. I mean, I, these are the same voters who, these are the same voters who saw this coming, who are your well-duh voters. So, I mean, I, I think that, that these are the, and, but they're also voting for, if I'm not mistaken, they're going back to kind of tie this together. They're also voting for that accountability. These are those same voters, correct? That's exactly right. They want to see folks held accountable here. Yeah, well, shit, good luck with that. So let me ask this question. What implications should, let's say, a Biden administration take from your focus group around impeachment and the failed insurrection? Was there anything notable that you thought spoke to how they should approach an issue like domestic terrorism or white supremacy? Uh, one is to name it, you know, like like uh, name okay. it domestic terrorism, name it what it is. There is a lot of reluctance to call this a mob, a protest. Uh, even insurrection doesn't feel like it captures the violence of what happened, you know, the, mm. the nefarious nature of what happened. Um, and so, you know, addressing racism in America requires us to crack down on white supremacy. And for Black voters, they want to see an aggressive and deliberate attempt to name and address white supremacy in it and the advancement of white supremacy over the last four years. You know, we're getting a lot of top lines from you. We're not, uh, we're not delving into the numbers. Like I told you before, when we, when we get our video pod up coming soon on the Bukhari Sellers podcast, we're going to make sure that we give people a lesson and have you bring out your deck. We got you talking about your deck right now. But I do want to switch before I let you out of here in the next few minutes. I want to talk about COVID because that's the number one issue across uh, the country. You've done some work in understanding how Black Americans are approaching the COVID vaccine. How confident are you based on the focus grouping and polling you've done that the overwhelming majority of Black folks will get vaccinated when they have the opportunity to do so? Yeah, Bakari, we've seen a lot of advancement here, man. We, we have done uh, getting people of color in the vaccine line is the number one priority of hit strategies this year. Just like our number oh, one man. priority last year, last year was getting Trump out of office. Our number one priority this year is getting folks in line to get this vaccine. Thank you um, for that. Absolutely, man. I, I don't want to talk to anybody else that wants, to, that wants my opinion about Black folks' votes but don't want to save Black folks' lives. But what we found recently, we just did a poll uh, about two weeks ago that found that only 26% of people of color are still reluctant to take the vac- vaccine. Oh, right. And I thought it would be higher than that. That's right. A month ago it was. Uh, you know, at the end of 2020, half of Black people, uh, at least half of Black people, depending on where you are, said they would not take the vaccine when it was available. Uh, what we have found, Bakari, with this rapid increase in trust, rapid increase in, in confidence in the vaccine, was that the lack of confidence was directly correlated with their lack of confidence in Donald Trump. 
It was their mm-hmm. lack of trust in his handling of the vaccine, that he would release it prematurely for political gain, right? That he would apply pressure to have it released sooner. Even language like warp speed, you know, uh, lent to this, mistru- this distrust of like, well, what's this thing they did so fast? But what's even more fascinating, Bakari, is that amongst the 74% of people of color that want to take the vaccine, 57% don't know where to take it. 59% don't know when they can take it. 61% don't live near a vaccination, don't live near or don't know if they live near a vaccination site. This is no longer just a trust issue, brother. This is a real and perceived barrier issue, structural it's barriers. Issue. It's a structural access issue. So, right. so we've moved beyond hesitancy for the most part. How do we fix those 20? This is the most, I never would have guessed this. Uh, this is This is kind of, I'm trying to process it because my next question was around hesitancy, which isn't as nearly as flushed throughout our community as I thought it would be. But how do we still address those 26, 27% of individuals who are still hesitant about the vaccine? Is it about the messengers or what? what's the way do we do this? Uh, that's right. So so I want to be clear that I'm not saying that we have, and for folks that can't see, I'm, show, I'm showing uh, Bacardi. I know, I'm over here looking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm giving him some, some, some sneak peeks of the data here. And I want to be clear that that while we have reduced that hesitancy um, by almost half, that twenty four that twenty you know twenty four twenty six percent of people of color still being reluctant is 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 still a problem, especially because amongst those the people that are most reluctant are non college uh, grads, are part time, are unemployed, are household incomes under fifty thousand mm. dollars. It is the, the the most disadvantaged the most at risk are also the most hesitant. And so we do still have, a, have to solve this trust problem. And the truth is, because it's not celebrity, right? When we're in focus groups and we ask folks and we show people Barack Obama getting the vaccine. They don't care. They don't care about that. The first thing they say to me, Bakari, is, well, of course he got a different syringe than I got. That's the president. <laughs> yeah. Of course they don't give him the good shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. They want to see their pastor take it. That's right. That is exactly right. It is, it is testimonial. Two things that we've seen work uh, for people that are the most hesitant. One, especially amongst Black folks, you know us, Bakari, it's community responsibility. Yeah. It is, I'm willing to take a, a 5% risk to, sit, to, to protect my grandmother 95% of the time. And the second mm. thing that works are um, testimonials from relatable people, right? A teacher saying, uh, you know, I, I didn't trust it either, but I had to do it to protect my students. Or a pastor saying, I have my doubts. You know, I've had my, my fair share of, of challenges with the healthcare system, but this one is too urgent. You know, and so, and so you know, we, we, we put a lot of, uh, a lot of stock into, into the big name and celebrity vaccine. Um, messengers, yeah. Messengers. But it could, it's, really, it's really the neighborhood barber. It's the, the people that we have that trust with. I mean, I've told people all the time that they need to make sure that our churches are involved, our HBCUs are involved, and make those, make those distribution centers, because we'll go there to get something before we go to a doctor's office or hospital. What are some of the things, based on what you've seen, that we can do? If you were in a leadership position right now, as you're talking about COVID relief, because that's one of the things that Joe Biden and Kamala need to do first and foremost, is your answer to the question, 
that we need to spend money on getting or limiting that barrier that we see when it comes to access? Is that going to help fix this uh, vaccination problem we have in our communities? Uh, you know, I, I think I think so, Bakari. I, I think that we have to be very, very deliberate about uh, the equity of this distribution, right? And this is going to cost some money to get to to equip a church to store, you know, house and distribute yep. the vaccine. It's going to yeah. cost money, but yeah. it may be the only way. Because what I'm what, what concerns me is that we keep seeing this hesitancy rate drop, right? That hesitancy that hesitancy rate could drop. To, to eight, nine, 10%. And that's going to be the last mile, right? That's going to be the hardest to reach group. And we may only reach them in their church. And so why wait for that? Let's, let's start let's being, start that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's start canvassing. Let's start going door to door and asking folks, Hey, we got the, I got this book bag with a refrigerator in it. Do you, can I sign you and your family up to take this vaccine? Right now? You know. <laughs> So tell me this, what do you tell me some of the trend lines you're expecting over the next two years? I mean, you know, we we are a McDonaldized society. By this time next year, we're gonna be like, COVID, what? Yeah, I mean, we got everybody's gonna be vaccinated. We're gonna be moving on to concerts and all of these things. I'm I'm prayerful about that. But what are some of the trends that you expect to see politically over the next, you know, before the next election cycle? And what is a what is a flyer that you're willing to bet on right now that everybody else isn't seeing? Something that we should be watching for that you think may happen. Uh, a trend, you know, I, I expect that I expect one that we haven't talked a lot about the, about 45, but I expect Trump to keep on imploding this party. And as a result of imploding the Republican party that, you know, young people don't vote for Democrats the way that are, are, are young people are more progressive on issues, but still voting much more conservative than I would expect based on their ideology on certain on, on issues. And so I think that what is happening in the Republican Party, their embrace of white supremacy, their embrace of conspiracy, this is the kind of shit that is turning young people off. Mm -hmm. And so I think Democrats have an opportunity here to start to consolidate what has become the largest voting bloc in America. I like to say all the time, you you know, white millennials vote a lot more like white people than millennials. Do we have an opportunity here to start carving out some of those white millennials and bringing them into a democratic coalition. What do you say to those people who are like, I want a third party? Uh, <laughs> Based on the um, science and the data, is it possible? I always say it's not possible. I'm like, me too, but it's not possible. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I just wanted to make sure that I was, I was the only one who recognized that impossibility. And what's a flyer? What's a gamble that you're trying to take? What do you mean flyer, Bakari? Tell me what you mean. I mean, something that is unsuspected, like uh, there was somebody who in 2014 said Donald Trump would be president in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, is there some is Stacey Abrams governor in 2022? Do Democrats maintain the House and Senate? Most people think they can't do it in 2022. Uh, what what out there are people not watching for that they should be something they're not seeing that they may see? You know, <sighs> I think we very well, and I don't mean to come back to, to the same thing, but I think we very well could see, and maybe this answers the third party question, not the third party they were looking for. We could very well see the split of the Republican Party. Mm. You know, we could very well see them uh, fracture irreconcilably um, because there, there are now tensions within this party, uh, especially amongst this more like fiscal conservative, moderate elite, college educated. That, that they just I, they, they just are not willing to go along with conspiracy. They're not willing to go along with QAnon. They're not willing to go along with racism. 
Um, but they're also not willing to go along with Democrats. They are very staunchly not Democrats. And mm -hmm. so I, I just, I don't know what other outcome we can expect here by 2022 when all of those people start getting primaried by whoever the hell Donald Trump picks. That's going to be, the, that's the thing right there. Because it's going to happen. That's right. It's going to happen. That's well, anyway, right. man, Terrence, man, thank you so much. I know you're so busy, man. Get back to your focus groups. Get back to changing the world, man. I'm going to be in touch with you about my future in politics. I'm bringing Terrence Woodbury on for certain. So don't get hired by anybody else in South Carolina, my brother. I look forward to seeing you at the top or hopefully at a homecoming this year. That's what all I can say. That's exactly right, Bakari. Thanks for having me, man. Keep doing this fantastic work. Keep giving voice to... Uh uh, voice of these communities. I need to hear from you, brother. I appreciate you. Oh, good, man. Thank you, man. Have a blessed day. Before I let you go, I wanted to talk about an issue that's not attracting much national attention. Hopefully we have some sirens or something going off because I need you guys to listen. There's a new water crisis and it's in Jackson, Mississippi. In case you missed it, since mid-February, large swaths of Jackson, Mississippi have been without clean water. Imagine you don't have no water in your house, y'all. So for many residents of this majority black city, they've been without consistently clean water to bathe in, drink, cook, and wash clothes for over a month. The immediate cause was a February winter storm where a cold snap caused massive damage to the city's water system. But the real cause, of course, as we all know, is aging water infrastructure that absent a significant infusion of money from Washington will never get fixed. Sound familiar? Sirens again, because this is when we got to be calling our friends like Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Secretary of Transportation, our HUD Secretary, Marsha Fudge, our President, our OMB Director, whomever that may be. We have to get these people involved. Whether it's Flint or my hometown of Denmark, water quality and the age of water infrastructure is significantly worse in black communities, which leaves our water quality and water access uniquely vulnerable to extreme weather and just straight up wear and tear. And that's why this next relief package from Washington, after we're done with the American Rescue Plan, must include the Water Act, which would guarantee $35 billion annually to help replace their aging water infrastructure to avoid a water crisis like this. And black communities like Jackson and Flint and Denmark desperately need this kind of intervention, and they need it now. And that's that on that. We'll see you all on Monday. Have a very blessed weekend. See you soon.